This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 147. Today's episode, we're diving into an alternative to obedience with Casey Myers. I could have gotten nerdy with Casey for a very long time. In fact, after this interview, we talked for 40 minutes uh, offline because we just have so much to chat about when it comes to child development and ways that we can best support these tiny humans. In this episode, though, we're diving into how we were raised and how our social programming and biases come up for us when we go to respond to kids' big emotions and how else we can navigate this outside of that obedience mindset. This is so hard for so many of us because we're bringing a lot from our childhood or we might have certain expectations of kiddos at different ages or stages. I love the framework that Casey lays out in this episode. I feel like it's really attainable and digestible. I love hearing about what you are snagging from our gift guide. If you haven't snagged that gift guide yet, head to seedandsow.org slash gift guide and snag your free guide to take you through the holiday season and purchase with intention. We have a special offer for folks for Mama's Getaway Weekend coming up soon. This special offer is only going out to folks who are on our Mama's Getaway wait list. So head on over to seedandsow.org slash MGW for Mama's Getaway Weekend and join the wait list. We will not spam you. We will only let you know about this hot deal coming your way. Stay tuned. It's coming on Wednesday, November 25th, so keep an eye on your inbox. Head on over to seedandsow.org slash MGW to get on the waitlist today. All right, folks, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today I get to hang out with Casey Myers. Hi Casey, how are you? I am great, how are you? I'm doing pretty well today. Casey is a delightful human because I've had to reschedule this interview multiple times and she's been so gracious each and every time and I'm so jazzed and grateful for you. Thank you, Casey. You're welcome, you're so welcome. I appreciate it. Oh, life. Uh, Can you share with the village just a bit about your background and kind of what brings you here today? 
Yeah. And so I've had a winding path through um, the world of early childhood and teaching. I'm going to give you the abridged version. It spans 20 years now, which is very odd to say, hear myself saying. Um, but I've been working with children and families for about 20 years. Uh, I started out as a preschool teacher. And uh, then I worked for a while as a speech language pathologist. I specialized in early intervention. And so I was um, working as a therapist uh, with children and families, always kind of specializing in that younger crowd, kind of birth to five. And at that time, I kind of got really fed up with just some of the social political things I was seeing about inequities in the healthcare system. And so I decided to go back and get my PhD and ended up getting a PhD in um, curriculum and instruction with a focus in early childhood studies. And so then started working as a teacher educator. Up until this past July, for the past five years, I was working um, in teacher education. So I was teaching courses in early childhood social studies, childhood studies, child development, and also working at our laboratory school the early year center that we had on campus as the research coordinator and the studio coordinator. So I was still working with young children um, just up until really up until the pandemic started. And then I decided to stay home with my two and a half year old because he can't socially distance and I didn't want to send him to school. So I had the option to, to leave being a professor for a little bit and uh, stay home with my kids. So that's kind of where we are right now. I do run um, a consulting service. I founded a consulting service with another colleague of mine, Rochelle Hostler. It's called Watershed Early Years Partnership. And um, we do all kinds of things, work with families, work with teachers around issues of children's rights, curriculum, pretty much it's a kind of a catch-all in terms of uh, what teachers need in terms of professional development from Watershed, but it's mostly focused on social studies, children's rights, and meaningful curriculum and how you build those things from a children's rights perspective. That's rad. I'm jazzed to dive into children's rights today and kind of what that means. Okay. You, We were connected because Mariana, our um, Spanish programs director, was like, you need to check out this toolkit that Casey created. I think it's right up your alley. And she sent over your particip participation toolkit. That's a challenging word for me, it turns out. Uh, and so I want to chat. I want to dive into this because that's what I was like, yeah, let's chat with her. Um, what does that mean to you? Like, can you give people a glimpse into what, what this means, like participation in general? And so the participation toolkit was something, again, that Rochelle Hostler, one of my colleagues and I created that was for teachers in schools, but uh, now I find I've been talking with some families more about these concepts. And it's about the idea of participation and thinking really critically about what that means for children in their daily life. So one of the things we find is that because many of us have been to school in some form or another, you know, as adults, we've gone through many, many years of school, whether it was traditional school or non-traditional or whatever it might be. Um, many of us have played sports, organized sports. And so we tend to have a pretty narrow view of what it means to participate in something. Because the word participation in a school context, in a club or sports con context has a very specific meaning. Okay. And that usually means you're obedient, you're compliant, and you adhere to the social expectations um, and you do what everybody else is doing, right? So if you're a child in school and you're talked to about not participating, a lot of times that means you're not in line. You're not raising your hand appropriately. You're not doing what everybody else is doing or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing at that time. I was a child that got in trouble for not participating in a lot of things. So I know this, so I know this very clearly. But if you think about just your own experiences, Alyssa, of if you had to think about what does participation mean, you know, in school or in any other kind of organized institutional kind of setting, you know, it usually means you follow the rules. You're doing what everybody else is doing, right? If we're having a sing-along and you're participating, that means you're clapping at the right time and singing at the right time, or you're just sitting there and being quiet, right? 
And so that is a very convenient definition of participation from an adult's point of view, but it's not actually from a social studies or from a a rights or civil rights point of view, what participation actually is. Okay, so there, we can use a different definition of participation, which means the state of being related to the whole. Okay? That's um, when we look at participation broadly, participating means that you're in relationship to the whole. So you're in relationship to your classroom as a student, you're in relationship to your family members as a child or as a parent, um, you're in relation to the other families who live in your neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And so this idea of participation opens things up to have it mean something much different than what it has traditionally meant in kind of a school or other kind of institutional setting. Does that yeah, make sense? I love this. Yeah, so many things came up for me. I was the kid who like always had my hand in the air, always had a question, like would fit the box of participation in a lot of ways. Definitely um, also push boundaries and a rule breaker, but really like engaged. And I, I fire off other people very easily and uh, it fuels me, right? Mm-hmm. And I was giving a presentation recently to a group of instructors here in Vermont who do professional development within Vermont, right? So the folks who do professional development, I was doing a presentation for them. And someone asked, it was about virtual presenting. Mm -hmm. Seed has been a virtual platform for three years now. And for so many folks, presenting virtual PD is really new and Mm -hmm. it was forced upon them. (laughs) So I was doing this presentation and someone asked about participation and how do we get people to participate in a virtual manner and it was so interesting because I what I realized was that what what they wanted was for people to be commenting and engaging in discussion Mm -hmm. and the reality is that that's not how everybody learns or participates in the discussion right I'm picturing like the preschooler who is on the other side of the room as I'm reading a book and then all of a sudden like makes a comment about the book and it it didn't appear as though that preschooler was even tuning in. He wasn't over on the rug with us reading. He was in block area playing, but is very much a part of this discussion and is taking it in. And I think for us so many times, I grew up like in a cultural context that was like, give me your eyes. Like, I want to make sure that you have heard me. Um, can, did you hear what I said? You know, like that I, they needed to know that I had heard it. And there were a lot of different ways in which that response was, uh, that they were asking for a response for me. And for me, when I think of like those kiddos, I think of my husband who is, the exact opposite of me and will go and will listen in a meeting and will take everything in and is so deeply reflective Mm -hmm. and will come back later with like all of these rad ideas or thoughts or processes that I may have like said in the meeting. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what I'm so intrigued by here is that we have created this, I guess, expectation around participation that involves like engagement, I think is the word that I want and like outward engagement. Mm -hmm. And that's not how so many of us show up in the world. Yeah. And I guess asking for particular markers of engagement too, right? That we're, we're guessing that people are engaged by, you know, these behavioral markers or these adherence to certain social expectations. So you're looking at me just because I'm looking at you doesn't mean I can fake it. Yeah, I've actually gotten very good at that over the years in meetings. Um, I can look at someone, I can nod my head, I could write a comment, but doesn't really mean I'm engaged or even existing in a state of relationship to the larger whole in a way that's meaningful for me. I'm just going through these kind of, you know, compliant, obedient kind of motions that we've come to um, designate as, oh, somebody is engaged. Right. They're right. participating. And usually that means whoever is in charge sets those expectations. And then we expect people to do what we want. 
Right. Well, and it comes from our social programming, right? Like it's something as they're sharing this, I'm like, oh man, so much of this discussion, I think will be around what we're bringing from our childhood. That's Mm -hmm. likely subconscious that we're not even like, oh, I'm going to make sure this child is obedient and here's how I'm going to do it. So Mm -hmm. much of it is our social programming and what we know and what we believe to be true. Right. Mm -hmm. Someone had reached out in DMs recently. I did a post on behavior and talked a little bit about obedience. And someone reached out and was like, well, they need to know how to follow the rules. And it just immediately, I was like, oh, that was what this person probably grew up with, right? Like that was the narrative in, and and so what fear is coming up here. Mm -hmm. And so as people are tuning into this and, and maybe stepping outside of, their social programming to even tune in and take this message in and consider it, I would encourage folks to kind of pause and take a beat to think about what did this look like for you in childhood growing up, whether it was with your parents or in school, et cetera, because all of that lives inside you and will drive what you expect now, just as you said, there's an adult setting those expectations. Sometimes we're unconsciously setting them or setting them from the subconscious. Absolutely. And I've talked about this with families and with the teachers um, that I taught for so many years, the future teachers that I was teaching, is that the same the same thing can be said for teachers as it can be for parents. And these are really the only two roles or jobs um, that I that I think this applies to. And it's that by the time you become a parent or a teacher, or both, <laughs> there are probably some people who are both. But before you have even become a parent or a teacher, you have hundreds of thousands of hours of on-the-job observation, okay? So you've gone through school, um, some kind of schooling for many, many, many years, and then you become a teacher. You've seen parents, you've had parents, you've been around other adults as a child for many, many years, and then as an adult, and then you become a parent. So that isn't the way it works with other jobs. You know, it's if you become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you usually don't spend your whole life up until that point observing people on the job being an engineer or a doctor. Um, But that's not the case for teaching or for parenting. And so things are deeply ingrained because we've been observing them for, you know, years and years and years and thousands of hours of watching and observing people on the job. Um, And so you're right. These patterns are really built into us about what we think is true, necessary, inevitable, uh, et cetera, about teaching or about parenting. So it it is helpful to think about what did, what counted as participation for me throughout my life. Um, How was it judged? How did I feel about it? Those things are, are really valuable for whether you're a teacher or parent to do, I think, because, because of the exposure that you've had to parenting and teaching, you know, throughout your life. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, that's so interesting. I was like racking my brain of like, are there any other positions like that? Yeah. I think you might be right. Uh, (laughs) That's wild to think about it in that context Mm -hmm. that we then already come to the job, whatever the job is with, yes, so many deeply ingrained patterns. Mm -hmm. So let's chat a bit about, I'm curious, how do we bridge this connection then between participation and children's rights? Like what is that connection? Yeah. And so if we start to think about participation as again, being related to the whole, we can think about it in terms of a classroom. I'll talk about it. I think more in the context of being in a family for the Mm -hmm. listeners of this podcast, but it can be, we want to think about the whole as any community that you're living in. And children exist uh, in multiple communities, right? So it might be their classroom, the family members that they live with, their broader community, their church, whatever it might be, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We want to think about how children are relating to that community and how they're involved in that community. And so from a children's rights perspective, participation really is about four things for children. And so one is inclusion. And so we want to think about our children being informed about the matters that are happening that impact their lives. Are they informed about things? Do we let them know what's happening and why? 
And again, we want to inform them in ways that make sense for their developing understanding of language and events, right? Um, we're not going to hand a written brief to a two-month-old, right? So again, <laughs> yeah. about how inclusion works for multiple ages of children, but we want to start thinking about it. Inclusion. Are the children that I'm with, whether they're my children that I'm parenting and caregiving for or children that I'm teaching, are they included? Am I thinking about inclusion every day when I'm making decisions that impact their lives? Yeah, okay. let's break this down and kind of what this looks like, because I think it can feel like, oh, do I have to include them on like what school I'm sending them to? And I want to go even more like, mm-hmm. I want to simplify this into like, I'm going to change your diaper or mm-hmm. we're going to get ready to go outside. <laughs> right. And like how mm-hmm. from like a basic communication of the everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. That's a great example. Just telling children what's happening narrating the day for them. And that's something um, that most people, I think, or most people that have a child development background would say is important for language development. Talk to your children all the time, tell them what's happening. But it's also important for a participation, um, for, for the development of participating in your community. You should just be informed about what's happening. And it can be something as small as we're gonna get ready to go outside and this is why, um, or we're going to have to go in the car soon. That's a big one for me with my child because he doesn't like wear, wearing a seatbelt. He's going through a phase where he doesn't like getting buckled in to the car seat. So I make sure and tell him this is going to happen, um, and it's necessary that it happens, and here's why. And uh, or, or it could be something about this is the school that you're going to be going to. Here's a picture of it. Here's what it looks like. Let's drive by and look at it, or let's go for a visit before you actually have to start. It's making sure they're informed about things that are happening, right down to from my the time my uh, son was a newborn baby, we would tell him before we washed different parts of his body. Like, these are the things that are happening to you. Sometimes there are things that you don't have a choice about. Sometimes there are things that you do have a choice about. But I'm going to let you know what's happening regardless, because that's your right. Now, if that seems exhausting, it is. <laughs> all, <laughs> the thing, all, all parenting is. It's exhausting right. either way. It's constant. You know? It's just so constant. And I think one thing that I think is so important that you noted is sometimes they have a choice and sometimes they don't. So, And, and I think how we phrase that uh, information is really important. That mm-hmm. I'm not asking, do you want to get in your car seat? I'm asking, do you want to climb in yourself or should I help you in, right? Like that, how, or do you want to go to school today might not be a choice. Here's the school that we're going to today. Here's the information about it. I think how we present that information is really important. And this is where I think we can see that line between like permissive parenting on one side, like and then like obedience, right, on the other side here. And I'm really looking for a middle ground always in everything. I think nothing is black and white, and I'm always looking for that gray area. Mm-hmm. And we have gotten a lot of questions in the village about these two opposite ends of a spectrum. And I think in, in the for folks who are tuning in who probably came from an obedience background and might have programming around that, I do think that it is really important that we as adults are setting the boundaries and holding them. And maybe this didn't happen for you in childhood, but you can communicate about the boundary, right? Like I grew up in a, because I said so household (laughs) where there was no communication about why something was happening or what was going to happen necessarily. It just was going to happen. And and this is where I'm saying like, we can, we can find that middle ground. We can move into a gray area here without moving into a child is responsible for navigating all these decisions. Like, are you going to school today? Will you get a diaper change? Will you ride in a car seat? Right? Like they're finding that middle space. Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. 
Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, Math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. I, I think this. if you want to give that middle space a name, you yeah. know, we have this continuum of, you know, kind of permissive, adults are permissive, adults are authoritarian. That middle space is um, in teaching what we call authoritative. Right. So that as an adult, I have certain responsibilities that I have, to, I have to step into my authority for things, for example, making decisions about health and safety, right? Because even though I respect children and I am really highly attuned to children's rights, because that's one of my specialties, I know that as an adult, you know, Adults and children have different developing brains and bodies that I have more experience on this planet than the children I'm teaching or that my son does. Um, And so there are things I know and have experience with that better enable to make, help me make some decisions than others. And that's, that's my job. And so being, not being afraid to step into that authority and seeing it as something that is respectful and benevolent is I think can be just as empowering for people who think that if I lose that authoritarian side, I'll just be, you know, flailing, right? Yeah. This middle ground of being an authoritative teacher or parent where you, you know, use the knowledge and experience that you have for the good of your relationship um, with children and the good of their developing brains and bodies in a way that, you know, it's not necessarily about fighting over control of things. It's just about knowing, you know, being comfortable in that role and the authority that you do have. Uh, totally. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. And thanks for making that distinction. And I think the word control um, on the other side, from the permissive side, I get a lot of DMs that are like, well, a child needs to be in control. And it's almost like a dirty word at this point, I think, in a lot of ways. And I don't, I think the reality is that a child doesn't always need to be in control. In fact, that would be very overwhelming for a child (laughs) to be in control. I think the same goes for parents. I think, you know, as a parent, as a teacher, like, for example, it, it gives me a lot of peace to be able to tell my child or to tell children I'm teaching. I don't know. I'm not sure of the answer. Uh, We can figure it out together, but I'm not sure. And so it's, it's a really heavy expectation to be in control or to know all the answers um, all the time for adults or for children. So, yeah. so yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I, I think that, you know, this idea of including children and in making sure they're informed about 
matters that impact their life is, you know, it's important. It's just kind of the first step in some of this. And some, I think, you know, some of these other elements of participation can also make people more uncomfortable. Totally. <laughs> you know, um, totally. we touched on the one of the other ones, which is expression. And, you know, this idea of if I'm a participant, a meaningful participant in this community, I should be able to voice my ideas and my questions and my concerns. It doesn't mean, again, that I'll get my way or, you know, it doesn't mean I'll get my way. It doesn't mean that um, what's happening is going to change necessarily, but I'm allowed to voice what I think about it. Right. And so you had the, the example, we talked about the example with the car seat, right? The choice, you, you don't have a choice about getting buckled into your car seat. I've said that many times and rolls off the tongue for me. Uh, <laughs> you don't have a choice about getting buckled in. Right. But you're allowed to voice your displeasure with it. Right. You're allowed to tell me that it's something that you don't like. I hear you. It's not comfortable. I don't think I would like to be buckled into a car seat either for two hours to go on a car trip. So I hear you in that. Um, So that's really an important part of it too, is making sure that children are able to not just be included and informed about what's going on, but they're able to express ideas, concerns, questions about matters that impact them, right? This, This one might be my favorite one. This is the one I think we as adults have the hardest time with because a, we want it expressed in a specific manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is uh, there are forms of pro-social expression that I want to encourage, right? Like, I won't let you hit my body. Uh, you can be upset about this, and I won't let you hit my body. So hitting is not a way that I would allow someone to express. Mm-hmm. But I think often we have a timeline for it, and we're like, it should be at a certain volume. It should occur in a certain place. <laughs> And you should say it with certain words. (laughs) And when it doesn't come out in that exact manner, we're like, nope, you need to express another way. Right. Or you need to stop expressing. And I think that we as the adults have so much work to do here. And when we were creating the set method, um, a colleague and I, Lauren Stavel, created the collaborative emotion processing method. We call it SEP, C-E-P. And we outlined five phases of emotion processing. And the very first one is allowing someone to feel um, or express. And people will be like, yeah, check, got it. I'm happy to allow them to feel frustrated. And yet we find this is often the hardest one because we're like, I will allow it under these circumstances in this exact manner for this amount of time. (laughs) And that's not really allowing people to have feelings. And, And I think it really starts with ourselves that I know when I start to feel like fear, I in my like go to reaction is to do everything I can to stop feeling fear because I don't want to, which then often leads to being trapped in fear, which we call anxiety. And uh, it's same with like disappointment, sadness. Recently I was, I was in such a grumpy mood and I was so sad. And I was like, okay, I'm going to allow myself to feel the sadness and I'll move through it and I'll cry. And so I let myself have a day of just like feeling and crying and I woke up the next day and I didn't feel better. And I was like, no, 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 I did it. I, I allowed myself to feel, I cried. I took my day and I'm supposed to feel better now. And I had to like really do a lot of work for myself to be like, Hey babe, you're allowed to feel for longer than a day, right? Like it's not always on a specific timeline. And I think this is part of it with kids is we're like, we have a timeline in mind of how long they're allowed to express mm-hmm. um, and communicate their displeasure, or we want, it's okay for you to feel frustrated about this, but then we want you to tap into coping strategies to calm your body, to stop feeling frustrated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like this, we get a lot, like, what, what, what do I do when my kid's not ready for coping? Go back to phase one of allowing them to feel. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard to do. Figuring out what to get these tiny humans can be really overwhelming. There are so many things on the internet and Amazon sending out that catalog with all those hot toys. 
But the reality is that so many of them last for about four seconds and then a kid's over it, or they last for a season and a kid outgrows it. We put together a gift guide just for you that is totally free, that has options for sensory and emotion-rich gifts. So things that will help calm their nervous system and support your tiny human's growth and development. And bonus, there is a section just for you, the adult, as well. Head on over to seedandsew.org slash gift guide to snag yours today. I love hearing about what you are snagging from our gift guide. If you haven't snagged that gift guide yet, head to seedandsew.org slash gift guide and snag your free guide to take you through the holiday season and purchase with intention. We have a special offer for folks for Mama's Getaway Weekend coming up soon. This special offer is only going out to folks who are on our Mama's Getaway wait list. So head on over to seedandsew.org slash MGW for Mama's Getaway Weekend. Join the wait list. We will not spam you. We will only let you know about this hot deal coming your way. Stay tuned. It's coming on Wednesday, November 25th. So keep an eye on your inbox. Head on over to seedandsew.org slash MGW to get on the wait list today. All right, folks, let's dive in. And, and I think one of the things too, is that we have to be open to, and again, I think this is even maybe even harder than letting children feel and express is that what we think is a situation that we've told them, um, you know, we've included them, we've informed them. Now we're letting them express. It's something they don't have a choice about. I think in those moments, that's the time to, to remember that, Um, Another part of participation is that children are allowed to influence, that we, that we need to also actively listen. I think one of the things that we have to consider is that I think even for those of us who think that we're really keyed in to children's expressions of emotions or discomfort, ideas, feelings, concerns, is that we will hold that space for them but say still, well, there is no choice. It's fine to be upset. You can be upset for however long you want to be about this thing, um, but there isn't a choice about it. I think that's, we do need to take the time to remember that part of participating actively and meaningfully in life is that you do have a chance to influence what happens, right? And so there will be times like getting buckled in (laughs) to your seatbelt, there is no choice about that. But there are things that children can have influence over and and it's more than okay for them to have influence over those things. And so part of participating is also this idea about deliberation and influence where children need to be given time to plan and make decisions about things. And they also... um, need to be actively listened to. And there are times where adults need to give them consideration so they so that children can impact the matters that are affecting them. Um, yeah, let's go deeper into this because, you know, you brought up like the car seat example. And I'm wondering if what you mean here by influence is that they can influence maybe like how they get in there, but they don't get to decide the what. Or if you're talking about another scenario, say where like, I know this has happened to me a million times where Mm -hmm. I've very quickly just said like no to something or set a boundary. And then I get a rebuttal from a kid. Mm -hmm. And when I can, when I am able to regulate and be like, you know what, actually, yeah, that makes total sense. That works. Um, or I was feeling concerned that if you played that in here, that lamp would get knocked over and broken. Uh, can you talk to me about how this game works and how we can make sure the safe, the space will be safe or whatever. But when, that's only when I can regulate to do that. So often I we're going through the day, we're setting boundaries all the time, especially as parents or in a classroom with 
18 kids, nine toddlers, whatever, you're setting boundaries and holding them all the time that sometimes things will come out and it's like, ooh, actually, now that I've thought about it or that this kid brought this up, that, that, that this can move, right? So is that what you're saying when you say influence? Yeah. You know, and it can be about really simple things. It can be about complex things, but we want to remember that this is, none of this is a, you get one shot to either be someone who encourages meaningful participation with children or not, right? Mm -hmm. This is about, you know, kind of an ongoing process of, uh, I like to use the word softening hierarchical structures, okay? We want to think about, are there times that children could make more decisions for themselves? Are there times where I could change what I'm doing so that children are able to do more of what they want to do in a way that's safe? Um, is there a way for me to soften the amount of control um, that I have over these situations? And a lot of times I think you're right. It comes after the fact when you have a moment to, um, you know, debrief with yourself and reflect at the end of the day or, you know, um, when a child is napping or something like that. Um, but I think the more you get into this practice of thinking about inclusion, expression, deliberation, and influence for children, it does become um, easier, I think, to do in the moment because it becomes a framework through which you're viewing, you know, your parenting or your teaching. And so I think it can be both. I think it can be, you know, in the moment and it can also be later when you reflect on something that happens so that you can change the way you carry out part of your parenting, you know, in the future. I think it can be both. But, you know, if we think about daily life for children, like I'll give an example with my son of how we can structure things a little bit differently in what seems like a very minor way to give children more opportunity to be included, to express, to deliberate and have some influence over things. So my son has always been um, really good at climbing up things. He can climb, you know, the tiniest uh, things, stand up on a drawer and be up on the count, you know, messing around on the counter. Um, and I think that's come out of him being kind of small. So he's always had to climb to be able to see. <laughs> he's, just a really, he's just a really great climber. Um, and so this was around, gosh, I would say he wasn't too yet. And so one of the things I was noticing is always trying to get up on the counter, always trying to get up on the counter and get t near the stove, get like the crock that has the spatula and the tongs and the whiskey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a parent, my instinct was stay away from the stove. Can't climb near the stove. The stove is hot. Don't touch the stove. Stay away from the stove. Get away from there. And when he would, when he would reach for those things and say, he would say, need that, need that, need that. I would say, no, I understand that you want it. I understand, but you can't have that. It's not safe for you up here. Um, and I would, I'll let you feel upset about it, but no, you can't have it. But then the more I thought about it, I realized um, it's, you know, he doesn't really want to be by the stove. It's, it's the tongs that he wants. And so after I watched him do this over and over again, and he was not at the point where he could sit down with me and, you know, deliberate and we could plan about how to restructure the kitchen, but over time of watching him and listening to what he wanted, um, I just took a bunch of non-dangerous kitchen tools and put them in the bottom drawer and took the lock, you know, took the baby lock off that bottom drawer in the kitchen and that solved it. Yeah. I still want him to stay away from the stove? Yes. Do I still have to talk to him about that? Yes. But there's a way for me to say, like, what does it matter? Right. <laughs> right? What does it matter um, if I store these? These They're spatulas and tongs and things. They're not dangerous. They're fine for, um, I know I trust him to play with those things in a safe way. Why can't I just put them where he could access them anytime he wanted to? Yeah. Is it, and is it quote unquote normal for people to have a drawer full of whisks in the bottom part of their kitchen? I don't know. I don't know anybody who does that, but who cares? He, it's his kitchen too. <laughs> he lives here. There's a way for him to use that space in a way that means something to him and that we don't have to be in conflict about his safety and his rights um, 
because it's near the stove. So we can just move that thing. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So something as small as that, but we, you know, I, I told him that he couldn't do it. He was upset about it. And then we kind of stayed stuck in this pattern that really didn't need to be there. And so letting him have some influence over the way that the tools were stored in the kitchen uh, made everybody happy. And it's not about being permissive because in the end, uh, you know, what, what makes a difference about where the kitchen where the kitchen tools are, you know? So it can be as, as seemingly small as that, as where the kitchen tools are stored in the kitchen. Um, but giving children a chance to influence, you know, matters that affect them, what things, what implements they have access to makes a difference. Yeah. And I had a part when you were sharing this that came up that, you know, we're all, we, we share about this a lot here in our reparenting world, but that we're made up of all these different parts that form throughout our whole childhood and life experience that form as a reaction to something, or they form to protect us or to keep us safe. And I had a part that came up that was like very much in that obedience narrative that was like, okay, but it's my job to set the rules. And if you can't have access to it, like, fine, you can't have access to it. And then like immediately felt this other part come up that's, that's often in battle with that one that I, and, and maybe this resonates with folks tuning in. Maybe you also had a part come up that was like, okay, but does everything have to be a conversation? That was kind of like what came up for me first. And then the second part that came up was a reminder for me that I call these kiddos tiny humans for a reason because they're humans. <laughs> and I think so often as adults, when it's convenient for us, we want them to participate. We want them to be in community with us in getting out the door and putting on their shoes or helping us do some things around the house, like maybe cleaning up toys or as they get older, doing dishes or participating in the family unit. And we expect them to participate when it's convenient for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so often we aren't willing to welcome their participation when it isn't convenient right. for us. Right. And I, that was a shift that I early in teaching really had to make. And it took a lot of reparenting work to, to be able to do that and to start to shift and see them as truly as humans that 
we aren't peers. Like I definitely have a different role in their life and there are, I have a fully developed prefrontal cortex and they don't. And there are rules that I will need to set uh, to keep them safe and things like that. And uh, it is okay. I like that word softening. It is okay for me to soften and make space for them to have a say in how we're going to navigate this. And sometimes they don't have a say, (laughs) but yes, sometimes they do. And I think just even, I think for a lot of folks, this resistance might come up of just like, oh, but I set a boundary. Mm -hmm. I said, you couldn't play near the stove and being able to pause for yourself and say like, what is that boundary about? If it is about safety, but they want those, you know, he didn't want to play with the stove burners. Like that would have still been a hard no, (laughs) you know, but it was really about tuning into what was he really communicating? He was saying, I want to play with the spatula or I want to play with the whisk. And when you were able to tune into that, then you could adjust the boundary of mm-hmm. we can't climb near the stove. And here's where I can put those things if that's right. what you're trying to engage with. Mm-hmm. But I just want to encourage folks, if you're listening, if those parts also came up for you, I know for so many of us, they are so deeply ingrained. And, mm-hmm. and I want to see these kiddos as whole people, not just when it's convenient for us to have them participate. Right. Right. And it's, you know, and it's hard work. I think that, you know, we also have to, I think, remember for me, this was a a really big switch. You know, when we talk about in our, you know, teaching careers and a parenting journey, whatever you want to call it, you know, when I was, uh, this has probably been about 10 years ago now. One of the things I think we always focused on so much when, whether you're raising children or teaching them is, okay, but what is the long-term outcome of this? Like, what's the long-term outcome? I want them to follow rules and be obedient because they can't be breaking laws. I don't want them to go to jail. Like they need to, they need to conform somewhat into the societal expectations that are there for them. If they want to get along and, um, you know, be a good neighbor and have relationships. Yes. Okay. Of course. But at the same time, we can't always just think about children as a future something, right? So everything that we do for our children, we have to remember that it's not just about who they're going to be later, but also what do they deserve right now? Right. And so there are some things, for example, I would have in my classroom where I, where if someone were to ask me, what's the research that proves that you should do this with children? Well, I don't have, I don't know the research, but I know that they're people. And when we sit down and talk with one another and listen to one another, it feels good. And that's what they deserve just because they're three. I don't know that it's going to make them smarter when they're 10. I don't know that it's going to help them uh, make more money or graduate college, but I know that it's important now to have a happy life now. And so I think it's really important to try and balance those things as a parent, because we oftentimes think so far, you know, down the road of we, they have to be able to do this. They have to be able to follow these rules. They need to be respectful. They need to get along in society. Okay, sure. But at the same time, we also have to make room for peace and joy and enjoyment and fulfillment that matters right now in the moment, not just because we can predict where it'll get us later. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I do want to add that I think there's great privilege in being able to do this if you're not concerned for your child's safety because perhaps the color of their skin or their gender, that there is great privilege in being able to say like, let's let them be kids now and enjoy this now and not be afraid of, okay, but if they show up in public as a seven-year-old on the playground, will they survive that interaction? Will they make it home? You know, so I, I do want to bring that into the conversation a little bit too and acknowledge that it, it might be something where you do outline where they can express, mm-hmm. where their body is safe to express and be a participant, and also preparing them for the world that they might live in right now, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, as we the adultification of black and brown bodies, especially black men or boys, um, 
is outrageous and it's real right now. And so I think, you know, if we have black parents or teachers tuning into this, who are looking at, okay, this sounds great, but <laughs> from a real safety concern, I want to acknowledge that too, that like Absolutely. We both prepare them for the future and the world that they live in right now and how to safely navigate it mm-hmm. and create spaces where they get to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and um, be their messy selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, I, you know, where there has to be a, there is always a balance with these kinds of things that you have to try and strike for your own family. That's right for you. And, and the unfortunate truth is, I think for anyone who is marginalized in our society, that balancing act is much, much heavier, right? I think that's a mixed metaphor, but it's, there's a lot more things to have to balance. And it's, you know, you're right. It's this, it's a really unfair reality of how certain people and certain bodies are allowed to move, you know, through the world in certain ways. Um, and so I'm glad that you brought that up as well. And, and again, I think that this is, you have to think through this through the lens of your own family values too. You know, parenting is really specific. It's really <laughs> socio, political, cultural, it's all of those things. And so you absolutely have to do these kinds of things in the context that feels right, you know, and safe for your family and for your children. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, we had somebody reach out recently that was like, I don't mind if my kid swears, but I feel like I don't want them going to school or going into a job or frankly, even going to grandma's house. Like, swearing. And I was like, you can set that boundary if you don't mind. If that's something that at your house, you're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is fine for you to be able to say or uh, a way that I'm fine with you expressing and letting them know, here's how other people in the world might perceive that. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's how that might feel for somebody else or a reaction you might receive from somebody else. And, And I think creating those spaces where we can say like, here's what exists at home and here's how we are going to interact in relationship and that it's okay to identify that those that might be different in different spaces in Mm -hmm. the same way that we as adults, like if I was sitting down to a conversation with like Oprah, how I show up would probably be a little bit different than if I was sitting down to a conversation with like my mom. Right. Like they're honestly from a place of respect, not that I don't respect my mom, but I'm like, oh my gosh, Oprah, you feel so big and powerful and delicious to me. (laughs) And there's a certain um, way that will show up just like in work or in school or at the grocery store might be different than man, when you're venting to your best friend. (laughs) And I think we can outline this for kids. I think so often we think that kids won't understand things. Somebody had recently, I, they were having a hard time with their kiddo going into the grocery store. They didn't want them to touch things. It's COVID, but I have to take the kid into the store. I'm a single parent. Yada, yada, navigating all this. And she was like, what do I do? I was like, talk to them, let them know the expectation going into the store and what it will look like. And if they, if they really wanted to touch something, how they can communicate that with you and just going through the expectations. And she was like, Oh, but he's 20 months old. I don't think he'll understand. And I was like, he definitely won't if we don't talk to him. Right. (laughs) Right? Like we don't read to kids expecting them to read back to us the next day. But this is how they start to build these skill sets. And I kids mm-hmm. understand so much more than I think we often give them credit for. And I think that's a huge part of the participation conversation is that I think so many of us have narratives or biases around at what age we would expect them to participate in different ways. And I want to give kids the benefit of the doubt early. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, all of us as humans, unless, you know, you're living on a deserted island somewhere and you've chose to, you know, you've chosen to segregate yourself from society. All of us exist in multiple communities with multiple expectations. Some of those expectations are fair and like some of them aren't and need to change. But, you know, the reality is, um, like you said, I know that when I'm at home, I can dress a certain way. If I went to work, I probably wouldn't there's some different expectations for that. Children learn those things very quickly. 
what's expected of them at school, at the grocery store versus home. And so talking with children about what expectations are and what's possible in different contexts is absolutely something we can talk about them, talk about with to them right away from, you know, from the very beginning. We have an expectation at my house that when you go outside of the house, you'll have underwear and pants on. If you're inside the house, I actually don't care so much. You know, my son's two and a half. Eh, mm. How dressed you are in your own home, I think is kind of your own business. But when you leave the house, you got to have pants on. No, you got to put on undergarments and put on the pants or shorts or a dress or something and cover up certain parts of your body that are only for you to see. So my son's been learning that for a while, for a while now. And, uh, you know, has learned it pretty quickly because he's kind of a nudie, you know? Yeah. (laughs) He's a nudie. So, yeah, I think that that's a big part of it too, is we have to have the expectation that children are capable with lots of guidance and experience and time, you know, they're capable of building, of building towards being a really active participant in their own life. Um, But, you know, it has to start from someplace and it can start someplace small. Yeah. I love that. I love that. This is so rad. Is the toolkit something that is available? Is it something that people could access? It was developed for specific teacher training, like for an educational organization, but pieces of the toolkit are available from lots of different places. Like these ideas aren't, you know, it's not something that we invented, right? That they're um, available and it's something we've kind of called together to make it digestible and meaningful. I think that's important though. Like when we were looking at the set method, similarly, I was like, man, we had all these different social emotional curriculums we were being exposed to and things like that. And none of it actually pulled together how we saw this getting broken down. And so the set method, it's nothing that we invented as the five parts of it, but it is an approach or a method that pulls these things together to say like, we need these as a core in order to move forward. I think that things like that and things like the toolkit are so helpful in this sea of knowledge and Google and all these things, resources and tools to just have a place that's like, all right, it's all in one spot here. Where could folks connect with you in general, if they wanted to dive deeper into any of this? Yeah, they can go to watershedearlyyears.com, watershedearlyyears.com, and they can contact myself or uh, Rochelle Hostler, who's the other principal founder of Watershed. They can contact us through our website. And yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's less about for us, like having a particular product to give to people versus, you know, listening to what teachers or families might need. And then we kind of design, you know, professional development or uh, in-service or collaboration opportunities from there. But if there are people who want to learn more about moving into parenting or teaching from a participation point of view, then they can contact us at Watershed Early Years, and we'd be happy to pass along resources to them about this, Um, whether it's the ones that we created or if it's somebody else's. We'd be happy to do that. I love that. Thank you so much. This is, I feel like I could just get nerdy with you and lost in conversation forever. (laughs) This is fun for me. Yeah. I love, I love, you know, for people who have dedicated their lives to this kind of thing, it's, uh, it's great to talk to somebody else who is just as uh, engaged and dedicated to it. So it's been really nice. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me today and sharing this with the village. And I hope that folks do reach out and, and kind of go deeper in this or seek out tools that allow them to go deeper, maybe in spaces in this conversation, if you heard something that you were like, Ooh, that triggered something in me or brought up a feeling or I had resistance to that. Mm-hmm. To be able to dive deeper into that specifically and see where's it coming from? What does it mean for you? And explore that a bit more for yourself. Absolutely. One one recommendation I could give, it's not a resource of mine, um, but when we talk about parenting, teaching, any ways of being with children from a children's rights perspective, where that comes from is a document from the UN called the Convention on the Rights of the Child. 
And so that's very easy to find the full convention on the rights of the child online. And so it's a, it was developed by the United Nations and it's uh, kind of like a bill of rights. So it has many, many articles under this convention and it kind of goes through from a children's rights perspective, what children are entitled to. And so this is an international document. It's been ratified um, by pretty much every country except for the United States. Um, Shocker. <laughs> South Sudan. South Sudan just became a country a few years ago. So they, they're they working on ratifying it. They have, I don't know that they have yet or not, but I know the United States has not ratified this, but every other country has. And so, which is a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, people are interested when we talk about children's rights or doing something from a rights perspective, that really comes from this convention on the rights of the child that outlines the kind of bill of rights for children in the world. And so um, you can go to UNICEF to their website and, or just Google convention on the rights of the child. And it'll give you some insight into kind of the breadth and scope of what we're talking about when we talk about children's rights. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for hanging out with me and sharing your zone of genius with me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.